Russia is the second largest gas producer in the world and the most important exporter of gas to Europe. Today, we are talking with Dr. Tatiana Mitrova, who is director of the Energy Center in the Moscow School of Management, a fellow at the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies, a researcher in Columbia University, a board member of Schlumberger, and one of the most important global experts in Russian gas markets. For a few weeks, the Asian premium, the spread between European and Asian gas spot prices, has disappeared. We discuss gas markets in this context and explore why Novatec has been so successful in liquefied natural gas exports, despite both not being linked directly to the Kremlin and facing sanctions. We also look into Nord Stream 2 to explore whether or not the project will be profitable and give an insight into why Gazprom sponsors the UEFA Champions League. This is the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. Hello, good morning, Tatiana. So welcome to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. Thank you. Good morning. I want to start just by asking about who you are and what you do. Difficult question. Okay, I am uh, formally, I'm director of Skolkova Energy Center. Skolkova is the biggest Russian uh, school of management uh, established 13 years ago. So I'm leading uh, research and educational activities in energy there. Uh, I'm also working in uh, Oxford Institute for Energy Studies uh, as a researcher and uh, as a visiting researcher in Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. And obviously, I'm professor here in Seattle. Uh, another affiliation which I was uh, appointed just recently is a uh, board member at uh, Schlumberger. Okay, very interesting. Uh, my idea today is to talk about gas and Russian gas markets. And in order to do that, I thought it might be useful to talk about the basics. So talk about the supply side and the demand side. So um, can you tell me who the major players are in Russia in both the export and the domestic market? Well, I think everybody knows Gazprom. Uh, It is uh, the monopoly which has inherited all the gas transportation assets from the Soviet times. It is actually the gas ministry which was transformed uh, into the uh, joint stock company. And uh, until recently, it was the dominant player in the Russian gas market with uh, uh, more than 90% of production and the biggest part of the domestic supplies. But starting from the beginning of this century, uh, other players uh, began to arise. First of all, Novatek which was a tiny uh, little company uh, which was managing uh, assets which actually Gazprom was not interested in. But step by step, they've managed to build a really very efficient gas producing company. Later on, as you know, uh, they began the biggest LNG project in Russia, Yamal LNG. And now they are the leading LNG exporter on the Russian market with extremely ambitious plans. So they are planning to build up LNG capacities up to 70 million tons per annum, which is comparable with the current Qatar uh, LNG exports. Another interesting player in this market is Rosneft, which is more known as the biggest Russian oil company. But uh, through different mergers and acquisitions, uh, it uh, managed during the last decade to build really uh, substantial uh, gas assets. Uh, they've also announced quite, you know, 
uh, ambitious plans in production to bring it up to 100 billion cubic meters. They do not have any export outlet, so they're working only domestically, but together with Novatech, they've managed to cherry pick the most attractive uh, customers from Gazprom. So currently, uh, non-Gazprom producers are supplying more than half of total Russian domestic gas demand. Therefore, uh, Gazprom's monopoly is really challenged. You can imagine that all these three players, they have endless rivalry and fight, using all their uh, lobbying resources to promote their interests. So that's quite an interesting game to observe. On the export market, how much of the market is LNG versus pipeline? Well, for you, several figures. Uh, Gazprom last year has exported 200 billion cubic meters of gas to Europe. Currently, Europe is the biggest market. Another 40 billion cubic meters went for the uh, former Soviet Union customers. So it's 240 BCM. Uh, And uh, LNG exports altogether, they were uh, slightly above uh, 15 uh, billion cubic meters. So it's a small fraction at the moment. And Gazprom holds uh, by law a monopoly for pipeline gas exports, while LNG exports were liberalized in the end of 2013. Though, you know, liberalization is probably a too strong word. Uh, So it was only Novatek and Rosneft which were granted this right to export LNG, not the other players. All right, so talking about the demand side, uh, Russia serves mainly Europe and Asia. And... In Europe, we're seeing flat or maybe even decreasing demand for gas. Uh, Can you explain a bit the reasons why we see such flat demand in Europe? With the European gas demand, it is a long story. Basically, uh, Europeans were expecting gas demand to rise in the beginning of this century. Uh, Gas was regarded as transitional fuel by that time, and um, the focus were about 2.5% per annum growth of gas demand. But then already in 2008-2009, it became obvious that something went wrong. So first of all, GDP performance was much lower than expected. Energy efficiency gains also worked. Uh, Crisis between Russia and Ukraine uh, has initiated all these uh, concerns about energy security, which made gas less less attractive. So many countries began their diversification policies, looking at the other sources of supplies. And of course, elephant in the room, renewables. Booming demand for renewables has actually partially squeezed away uh, this market niche for gas. Another important factor which has affected gas demand was um, actually very low prices for coal. So China turning into more environmentally friendly path of development has reduced basically demand for coal and for a period of time from 2010 till 2014 prices for coal were very low making coal generation more attractive than gas generation so altogether it has resulted in a major decline in the gas demand which has actually recovered slightly during the last couple of years but the the future of this market is still extremely unclear, especially given the new uh, goals on renewables, uh, which were adopted by the EU. This recovery, is it from Asia or from Europe, in gas markets? Uh, recovery in Europe, 
during the last couple of years, driven first of all by lower gas prices. They used to be uh, 10 to 12 dollar per MBTU, but during the last couple of years, they are fluctuating between 6 and 8 dollar per MBTU, and recently you've seen 4.5. Okay, so gas prices are very low, as we know, and they're low in both Europe and in Asia. In fact, um, maybe I think it was two weeks ago we saw for the first time in a long time the gas price in Asia going below that of Europe. Uh, Why is this? Well, uh, Asian premium uh, has always been there in the market, and you are absolutely right. Recently it has disappeared. I suppose there is uh, a number of factors. First of all, growing LNG supply. First of all, all these LNG projects in Australia, which finally start to flow into the market. Long-expected LNG glut starts to appear on the market. But then it was also warmer winter and uh, slightly changing regulation in China and also some uh, changes in Korea and Japan. So uh, it is a bit of a coincidence, but basically uh, I would say it is reflecting this changing supply-demand balance. We were all talking about LNG oversupply. It was delayed and delayed, but finally it starts to show up. Yes, indeed. Um, you had a lot of people talking you know, within the past five to ten years about a global gas price. So now that we have convergence in Europe and Asia, do you think this is a a sign of this or will the spread between the two markets appear again soon? Well, uh, I think it's still far away from the single uh, global gas price. If you look at Henry Hub prices, it's quite different. So uh, there are lots of regional prices. There are lots of regional regulated prices, by the way. So And uh, basically, uh, the gas market differs from oil because of very high costs of gas transportation. So in order to make it a single market, much more developed uh, infrastructure, both in terms of pipeline and LNG supplies, should be developed to make this market really liquid. So far, infrastructure is a constraint. Gas has tended to be sold on uh, long-term contracts. Can you explain the rationale behind this? Well, it's the same rationale, uh, very expensive infrastructure. So if you are an investor, you want to be sure that these 20, 30 billion dollars that you have invested into the pipeline or into the liquefaction plant and LNG tankers or will, uh, that you will get uh, them back. Uh, therefore, um, these uh, investments, they were always historically justified by long-term Uh, contracts, both for pipeline gas and for LNG. Right now, uh, the market begins to change. So many projects which were built in 1960s, 1970s, they've actually paid off completely. So they do not need this justification by the long-term contracts. Many new contracts are, uh, many new projects are evolving, uh, which tend to sell at least part of their gas at the spot market, but they do still need for the new uh, developments uh, at least some part uh, of uh, long-term contracts. And if you look uh, at the market right now, you can see that it is approximately 20% globally, which is sold already at spot, but the rest uh, is still requiring long-term contracts, though I would stress they are changing as well. So first of all, pricing formula is changing. You can have long-term contracts which are oil-linked. 
you can have long-term contracts which are linked to the hub prices, which is a big difference. And uh, they are becoming shorter and the volumes are becoming smaller. So anyway, we see this trend towards more liquid and flexible market, but it takes time. Professor Stern, who is a colleague of yours at the Oxford Institute, um, in one of his lectures, he was saying that he thinks that you know, in 10 to 15 years, we'll see a much stronger move to a spot market. If this does happen, who do you think the winners and the losers are in the world of a spot gas market? Well, we see it already uh, happening uh, in Europe. Right now, it is more than 70% of all gas supplied uh, at these spot prices. It has happened already in the US quite long ago in the UK. So these markets are quite sustainable and well-functioning. It's difficult to say uh, whether there will be any clear losers and winners. Uh, It will be a problem for the uh, gas producers because, as I said, it will be more difficult for them to get money from the banks. It will be a problem for the banks to a certain extent because uh, they will have to deal with more risky assets. I don't think that is going to be a really big challenge for the customers, though in the periods of gas deficit, so this market is cyclical, uh, for the customers which completely rely on spot prices, that might cause uh, really hugely uh, increasing gas bills. So they will need to go for hedging for some additional uh, insurance measures in order to manage all these risks. All right, let's talk a little bit more about LNG. Uh, Russia's first LNG plant was in the very far east. In fact, it was Sakhalin. It started production in 2009. And I I might argue that Russia was quite late in the LNG export market. So first of all, do you think this is true? And second of all, why do you think they were late? Uh, I think it is true. Uh, And the Sakhalin project was actually initially discussed uh, in the late years of the USSR, but it never happened. So Sakhalin was all developed by uh, Shell and Japanese uh, counterparties. And then uh, only at the very late late stage, uh, Gazprom jumped in. Uh, There were several other projects on the development. Gazprom was looking at a Stockman project, which has never happened because it was targeted at the U.S. market and obviously with with the U.S. shale revolution it became like uh, unnecessary. Uh, Gazprom was also looking at an LNG project on Yimal at Harasavi and Kruzenstern and again it never happened. There were lots of discussions about Baltic LNG and uh, some further expansions on Sakhalin, which are still in limbo. So uh, basically the massive LNG development, which we are observing now, it began with Novatech stepping in in 2013, once the LNG export liberalization has happened. So uh, by this time, uh, LNG already became like the leading trend on the global markets. And right now we see simultaneously three new major suppliers coming to the market. So Qatar is still there and it is planning to expand its capacities. Uh, then U.S. becoming a major LNG player, Australia right now commissioning a number of LNG uh, projects, and Russia, which will be the fourth and the last one entering this global competition. And of course, when you are uh, joining the market where there are already several well-established players, 
it is more difficult for you to secure the market niche and to find the customers. So I think if Russia would do this like five, seven years ago, it will be could be much more uh, easy. But so, okay, the time yeah. is gone. So you you mentioned the Yamal project, and what I think is very interesting about the Yamal project is that it has a number of advantages in terms of um, let's say where it is and the gas reserves that are nearby, but nonetheless, it's not a state company which is in charge of it. Indeed, it's Novatech. So when Novatech were building this, they also got a, a number of advantages from the state. For example, they got a tax holiday. I understand also they got a free airport. They got a free port. Um, so why is it that Novatech, A, became the leader in LNG exports when they're not a state company, and B, got so much subsidies from the state? Well, uh As for the first question, why it was Novatech, I think uh, the answer is very simple. They were the only one uh, who really put the stake on LNG development. For Gazprom, it was not; uh, it was always not number one on their priority list. They love uh, big pipeline projects, so building Nord Stream, building South Stream initially, which then turned out to be Turk Stream, building Power of Siberia—that's a real challenge for the big guys. Uh, LNG is something more complicated and difficult, and frankly, nobody believed that it is doable to develop such a huge and complicated pr- uh, project uh, in uh, Yamal Peninsula. As you've men- mentioned, it's a very difficult and challenging environment. It's above Arti- Arctic Circle. It's permafrost. So if you want to build anything there, you need to bring all the construction materials. You cannot just put a building on the ground because there is no b- ground, yes. basically. So you need to put numerous piles and it makes any uh, construction uh, extremely challenging and expensive. Uh, minus 40, minus 50 degrees Celsius, uh, very strong winds uh, in winter, and melting uh, ground, melting permafrost uh, in the summertime. Sure. That's really not a very favorable environment. And I would say both Gazprom and all the analysts around the world were very skeptical whether it's possible to do technologically not only the uh, LNG plant construction, but also uh, navigation uh, along the northern sea route. Uh, Russia was talking about it for ages, but it was never capable of doing that. Just to clarify, the northern sea route is the route that goes through the Bering Strait and allows delivery to Asia much more cheaply, right? That's correct. So Novatech uh, took uh, this courage and uh, focus Uh, nevertheless, to promote this project, and they've succeeded. And that was really a very big unexpected success. Uh, what they've done was not only to develop uh, the project itself, but actually you've mentioned this free airport and free, free port. Indeed, the funding was provided by the state, but Novatech was actually in charge of building all this infrastructure. So money didn't disappear, as sure. it happens in many other sure. cases, and the pro- uh, everything was delivered in time, in budget, and in Arctic. So Novatech are very ambitious in, in many respects. In fact, they say that by 2030 they expect Russia to have about 20% of the LNG export market. I'm a little bit skeptical about this, particularly given how low gas prices are at the moment. But by 2030, um, Russia are meant to have 20% of the LNG export market. I'm a bit skeptical about this because gas prices are so low. 
uh, and the incentive to invest is therefore much weaker. Uh, do you think that, or, or say, first of all, can you give us an overview of the planned LNG projects and um, give your opinion about what conditions uh, they will go for a, f- a final investment decision? Novatech is right now regarding Arctic LNG 2, Arctic LNG 1. Don't ask me why they are named this way. So Arctic LNG 2 is the one to, uh, the first to come. They are looking uh, also at the further expansions in the same location in Yamal Peninsula. Gazprom is looking at a Baltic LNG, which should be 13 million tons per annum. Rosneft uh, is still uh, speaking about a Far Eastern LNG at Sakhalin, and Gazprom together with Shell don't give up with expanding Sakhalin too. These are the main uh, Russian LNG projects under discussion, plus a number of small-scale LNG projects, both in Baltics and in the Far East. So I believe that Novatex projects are uh, most promising at the moment. I think they are very close to making FID on Arctic LNG too. So they they began already to uh, sell this gas, to contract it. Uh, they have a queue of uh, investors willing to participate, Chinese, uh, Total, obviously, CNPC, uh, Saudi Aramco has expressed a big interest in this project and Japanese, Korean uh, and other companies are negotiating. So I think this year we will see this announcement. Uh, as for the other projects, yes, uh, it is a subject for the market conjuncture. Uh, though you can see that LNG markets are extremely cyclical, so they go from super profits down yeah. to really shrinking margins and back. Uh, right now we are entering this phase of oversupply, uh, which will last at least three, four, five years. But after that, again, if you look at the supply-demand balances provided by all the analysts, post-2024-2025, there is again a gap evolving between the existing capacities and the growing LNG demand. So if Novatech starts any new projects right now, uh, they will not be commissioned before that time. Anyway, it takes quite five, seven years to build up the project. So I think that's the plan, basically. Uh, They want to jump right now into this uh, rising market niche and to capture it. And they, uh, having this uh, state support, having extremely low cost gas, it is like $0.5 per MBTU uh, for the uh, gas production uh, in Imal Peninsula, having more or less acceptable uh, costs of liquefaction, which they are trying to reduce with their own technologies. They can compete globally. Uh, so, of course, uh, transportation costs, uh, that's the main challenge. Being located in the middle of this uh, Arctic Ocean doesn't help. Uh, but they are also developing all these mechanisms uh, to optimize transportation with uh, uh, transshipment in Murmansk and in Kamchatka, uh, with uh, optimizing uh, their contract portfolio. So these guys are really smart. They have shown already uh, they are really the most efficient company uh, in Russian gas market. And you can see how uh, fast and adaptive they are in the global LNG market. So they've managed to contract all gas from Yamal LNG. Uh, so 100% uh, is under long-term contracts already. So that's, uh, that's a good indication. 
which which I understand are indexed to oil. Uh, mostly, yeah. They're doing very well, actually, I suppose. In fact, oil price was uh, $70 yesterday, so... Not a bad deal. Not a bad deal for them, exactly. All right, so let's move to talk a little bit about sanctions. Sanctions were imposed on Russia following the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Who is imposing these sanctions and what actually are they? First of all, the sanctions are being imposed by the US and EU. Uh, they are slightly different, but uh, all in all, uh, they are focused on the uh, financial sector, on the energy sector, and uh, they ca- could be split into two uh, main groups, technological sanctions and financial sanctions. Nearly all major Russian oil and gas companies are now under financial sanctions, so borrowing money from the international financial institutions is becoming much more difficult for them. Uh, But also there is a list of technological constraints, uh, which are uh, deep water, uh, offshore oil production, including all Arctic production, Uh, drilling for uh, shale oil and some uh, other dimensions of uh, oil production. Uh, Gas is not uh, on this list, though uh, you've probably heard all these discussions about potential sanctions on Nord Stream 2, potential sanctions on uh, Russian overseas LNG projects. I wish I knew where they are, but okay. So uh, the problem with the sanctions is that Um, they are expanding and they are creating a huge gray zone where counterparties of the Russian companies simply do not know whether it is dangerous or not, where they fall under the sanctions or not. And obviously they prefer not to take this risk or to ask for a very high risk premium. It's easy to be skeptical about sanctions because there are many cases where they haven't really achieved the political objectives of those who are imposing them. In this case, what do you think the long-term and the short-term political objectives of the the US and the EU are with imposing the sanctions? Well, uh, sanctions are normally imposed not uh, not exactly to punish uh, immediately the country which misbehaved, uh, but uh, to actually undermine uh, its future economic development. So if you look uh, at Iran, for example, okay, its economy didn't collapse after the sanctions were imposed, but the future was uh, taken away. Uh, there is stagnation, there is no uh, real economic development. So uh, sanctions are much more focused on the longer term rather than on the immediate effect. And from this point of view, I would argue that sanctions which are already imposed on Russia are quite uh, important and quite uh, sensitive from the long-term perspective. Of course, domestically in Russian discussions, you can hear quite frequently that, okay, it's not a problem, we can overcome it, we will develop import replacement and all this stuff, we will mobilize and resist this pressure from outside. But we can see that uh, Arctic development, for example, or uh, heavy oil development, shale oil development, they are challenged. And moreover, it is undermining any international cooperation, which is the key for success in the modern world. So being isolated definitely doesn't help. All right, let's talk a little bit about Nord Stream 2. 
Oh, my favorite Your topic. Your favorite, yeah. Well, it's, it's everyone's favorite topic. I mean, I hate it already. Yeah. I'm talking about it for the last 10 years. And I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's such a subject for misperceptions yeah, and indeed. geopolitical uh, speculations. Poor gas industry. Uh, it became actually a victim of politics when a project of the pipeline, which should be normally discussed by the economists, is becoming uh, like a battlefield for politicians. In that case, I'll, the first question I'll ask is, why is it so controversial? Ultimately, if you're European, if you have another pipeline, it means that you'll essentially have cheaper gas than you would have done otherwise. So why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because of the Ukrainian transit, obviously. So the initial uh, rationale for Russia to go for Nord Stream as well as for Turk Stream uh, was to bypass Ukraine. All these Russia-Ukrainian gas disputes, they are ongoing for the last 20 years without any success and without any hope to uh, solve these issues. So. It seems to be a dead end. Uh, and at a certain stage, a uh, Russian side decided that, okay, we are fed up or we will rather build uh, even more expensive uh, pipelines uh, without transit, which will justify uh, reliable transit, reliable supplies without uh, any headache with Ukraine. So uh, this, of course, has created lots of fears inside Ukraine about loss of transit revenues. And also it has created lots of tensions uh, in the countries which are receiving right now gas from Ukraine. So uh, it is Poland, it is uh, Central and Eastern European countries, which are then becoming more dependent on Russia, on Turkey, and uh, they regard all these development as a threat for their energy security. After supply disruption in 2009-2010, and after after Crimea, after all these, uh, you know, uh, rising conflict between Russia and the West, uh, it is really an issue for many countries which have border with Russia, including Baltic states. They are quite frightened uh, by this. And therefore, Nord Stream uh, and Nord Stream 2, uh, it became uh, like much more than just a pipeline. It is a pipeline which would allow Russia to completely get rid of Ukrainian transit. That's like the uh, concept. Sure. Frankly, it's not correct. We've shown in one of our recent researches that even if Nord Stream 2 is completed and Turk Stream uh, 1 and 2 is built, actually Russia would still need uh, Ukrainian transit, but it will be lower volumes and probably different pricing. There's been some questions raised about the potential profitability of Nord Stream 2. And of course, it's facing some cost overruns, which are a function of the delays which have been uh, imposed on it. But um, do you think the project will be able to be profitable? Will it run at high enough capacity to make money? Uh, well, look, uh, first of all, the, this project has ship or pay arrangement, sure. which means that it is receiving money whatever happens. So it, it is already from the very beginning structured sure. in such a way that uh, shareholders will be happy. But uh, even if not for this arrangement, I think uh, it could be quite profitable, though it depends on the Ukrainian position. So far, Ukraine has proposed 
quite high uh, transportation tariff. So, of course, it is subject for further negotiations. But at the moment, uh, Nord Stream route uh, seems to be cheaper than Ukrainian transit, which I would say is a big mistake of Ukrainian side in these negotiations. And also another factor, Russian uh, resource base is now moving from traditional Nadimportas area uh, further to the north, to Yemal, Bovanenkova field is now the main production asset. And so now gas to Europe is, will be mainly transported not through the central corridor from Nadim Portas through Ukraine, but from the, uh, through the northern corridor from Yemal, uh, Uhta, uh, and then through the Baltics, which allows uh, to have a shorter transportation route. It is 2000 kilometers shorter. Sure, sure. which gives you also quite a good saving on the transportation costs. So it's, uh, I mean, of course, initially this project was driven by politics. I wouldn't deny it. So for Russia, it's first of all about politics. But then suddenly they found out that, okay, in terms of economics, it's also not that terrible. And Ukraine helped uh, announcing uh, like a yeah. very high transportation sure. tariff. And now Russia can say very clearly, sorry, it's about markets. We cannot choose more expensive options. I have one final question. Why does Gazprom sponsor the UEFA Champions League? <laughs> oh, come on. I wish I knew. Um, I'm not a football fan, so I will never understand it. But I think that, first of all, they simply like football. Okay. As many, uh, yeah, as many people do. So, uh, But uh, more importantly, I think uh, it is an attempt to build a better image in Europe, especially in Germany. Uh, to show that uh, Russia is not an enemy, we are the same people which watch football, which sure. uh, uh, which uh, share the same values. Well, probably it was not the best PR campaign uh, by Gazprom, uh, but I mean, it's much better, I believe, than many other things uh, related to the political speculations and other stuff. So it's better to play football together. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, thank you very much, Tatiana. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy podcast. Recorded and produced in Paris by Paul David Evans with help from Sirvash Barhodar. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on iTunes or whatever you are listening. And if you're an undergraduate student and you're interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po.